Paws in the Storm is a new series brought to you by Haymarket Books in collaboration with Gargi Bhattacharya, one of the UK's leading scholars on race and capitalism. Gargi will be joined by one Haymarket author each month to explore ways of collectively rebuilding our crumbling world. Short and accessible, these conversations encourage us to pause and reflect on how to change everything. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and the Haymarket YouTube channel to access all of our upcoming events. You can support our work by buying our books. Check out our website, haymarketbooks.org, to browse through our titles on abolition, borders, socialist politics, our poetry collections, and much, much more. Hello, and welcome again to um, A Pause in the Storm, which is the Haymarket series, which tries to allow people a quick half-hour kind of break in their day to think with the Haymarket author about their writing, but also about our moment, kind of just to breathe a little bit. Today, I'm really overexcited again. I know every week time I say, oh, I'm so overexcited. I'm so overexcited again to have a chance to speak to Hadas Tia, whose um, phenomenal A People's Guide to Capitalism has been really, you know, breaking left book-selling records and reigniting people's imagination about what an anti-capitalist approach might be in our time, I think. So we're going to have a free-flowing kind of accessible conversation, and I hope that for all of you it's something that helps you think about the book, but also other books and your lives as well. Thanks so much for coming, Hadass. My pleasure. Uh, Thanks for having me. So the first question is really... I'm sure an obvious question that everyone is asking you, but that listeners will want to hear again is, how did you come to write this book? And you speak a little bit about the kind of weight of the people I think of as the dads of the left. And they are kind of my spiritual dads as well. But they're a little bit silencing and the weight of their approach and thought can kind of stop you speaking. And I wondered if you could say a little bit about writing this book and writing it now especially as someone who probably in common with myself is familiar with those space, those dad-like spaces of the formal left. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that that, that played a big role in why I wrote the book. Um, it, it played a big role as well in why I, you know, I'm not a trained economist, uh, but I became a socialist and an activist over 20 years ago. And um, I really set myself to try to understand the economy, uh, precisely because, you know, you know, I'm stubborn and, um, I insisted that, you know, I, I want to be able to understand this thing that seems so mystified and complicated and that, um, you know, is by and large, um, a field that's dominated by men, um, including within, um, within the left, uh, in the Marxist left. So I, you know, about 20 years ago, um, maybe a little bit longer, I can't remember, um, really forced myself to try to grapple with these issues and to try to read capital and to try again and again until I I understood it, um, you know, to sit down with comrades and have, uh, study groups and, uh, 
um, grapple with these, with these big issues, because I, I felt at the time, and I feel even more strongly about it now that, you know, for, for us as a left to be able to understand the economy, you know, for economic issues to be in the hands of regular people and particular people that are trying to change the world is really important that we can't leave it up to the so-called experts, um, but that actually for a left to be strong, um, it has to it has to know what it's up against and that um, it has to understand the economic edifice uh, of capitalism. So um, so I, 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 I started to really uh, immerse myself in um, in political economy. And as I did so, um, I started to give talks at um, conferences and socialist meetings and so on. Uh, and in it, and, and to try to make these ideas as accessible as possible to kind of dust off the old jargon and to, you know, make these ideas alive and accessible and in, and in particular to a broader audience. It's not just, you know, uh, white educated men, um, but to, to everybody. And in a lot of those discussions, I found that it was, uh, that that they were the audience was often dominated by by men and that the discussions were often dominated by men. So I felt all the more strongly that I wanted to keep speaking, you know, to be um, to provide some kind of uh, uh, to provide some kind of a model, you know, of uh, women who can speak and write uh, about the economy and to explain these issues. Um, so. That that was uh, a big impetus behind the book um, and behind all the things that led up to the book, um, but also you know the timing of things uh, worked out in a way that I I didn't anticipate in part because it took so long to write the book. You know it, I I started writing it um, almost ten years ago and it was coming out of you know Occupy Wall Street and the Great Recession um, and it took so long to write it that by the time I finished it. We were in the midst of an uh, even more profound crisis of capitalism, and so it it ended up uh, landing right at a time when people um, m- most wanted to and needed to kind of grapple with questions of what is capitalism and um, and, and and what can we do about it. And that was really the, the next thing I wanted to really ask you about, because as you've said that. For all kinds of complicated reasons, it's really spoken to people. It has had. If you'd have said to me two years ago that one of the, you know, one of the books that you'll see in loads of bookstores and regular people want to pick up from left publishing is basically um, an introduction to Marxist economics, even though that's the subtitle, not the main title, I would have said, you know, get away with you. That is not. And 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 um, and although, as you say, you know, you describe yourself as not a trained economist, but it is quite an economicsy kind of piece of work. It's it's written in a way that you know you don't have to know the big words, but it basically takes you through the big concepts of Marxist economics, and then says, and this is how they relate to your life. Can you say a little bit more about? how you understand the kind of hunger there seems to have been for this kind of work, which which I have never read anything else like it that does the kind of job that you have done. And yet it's had this reach and kind of resonance with people. Yeah, I, I, 
absolutely agree with you that if you had asked me a couple of years ago, I also would not have anticipated um, the popularity of a book about Marxist economics. And it really speaks to the times um, that we're living through. I think, you know, like I said, when I first started writing it, we were we were at the cusp, I think, of a real sea change for the left internationally. Uh, but we were just at the beginning of it, you know, at the beginning of the decade coming out of the Great Recession, um, just uh, unparalleled inequality. And then, we, you know, we had um, the Arab Spring and Occupy Wall Street, um, you know. But in the years following that, while I was in the midst of writing the book uh, in the U.S., we had Bernie Sanders um, campaign in 2016. Um, the explosion of growth of uh, an organization like Democratic Socialists of America, uh, but more broadly, you know, a revival of the socialist left. Um, we had Black Lives Matter. Um, you know, uh, the, there was, has really been over the past decade um, a sea change in both mass consciousness, but also within that um, a growth of, of, a, of a, you know, a, a left that's being reborn. Um, and I think, you know, the pandemic uh, over the last year and a half, and, and my book came out right at the beginning of the pandemic, basically, has, you know, is sort of like the, the, the nail, the, what is it, the nail in the coffin? Um, is that the expression? But, you know, it just exposed every rotten, incompetent, anti-human uh, aspect of capitalism. And I think it's forced, you know, and it happened on top of, you know, what I had already said over the past decade and just uh, massive and unprecedented uh, class inequality. But on top of that, we've had this unbelievably inhumane, wretched response to the pandemic on the part of states and the capitalist class. And I think millions of people are really trying to understand capitalism right now, um, trying to understand how it is that um, a system that at, at minimum is supposed to at least be able to provide us with goods and services, right? That's supposed to be the bare minimum, but couldn't provide basic masks and ventilators, uh, vaccines, you know, the things that we, we need, capitalism cannot actually provide. Um, and that's uh, the tip of the iceberg, obviously, in terms of uh, mass deaths and um, how the health aspect of the pandemic was and was not handled. So I, I, I do think that there is a, a very broad hungering, you know, hunger right now for understanding capitalism. Obviously, my book was able to reach a very small portion of millions of people that are trying to grapple with these questions right now. But I think the revival of the socialist left um, and socialist organizations meant that it could be used in particular by new activists um, to, to deepen, un unpack what were and are kind of broad anti-capitalist sentiments and try to, um, you know, give some, some, some meat to those bones, you know, um, um, and, and provide a, a deeper Marxist analysis to that kind of broad sentiment. No, absolutely. And I think that's so interesting how you describe the different bits and especially the pandemic. I mean, one of the things that I've been interested in in, in Britain is the point at which it's become possible to talk of capitalism again. 
because like even a decade ago, it was a tiny fringe that you'd say the beast is capitalism. You now you can talk about poverty, you can talk about inequality, you can talk about racism, but capitalism that puts you. If you start to say, well, that's if you want to know the story that will help you understand how these things come about in this conjunction, this is the story. Uh, but um, and I've been surprised at how quickly, as you say, that suddenly people from very different bits of social movements have said, "It's capitalism. That's the devil's name. Right. That's what it. That's what he looks like." Exactly. And um, who would have thought it? Yeah. So, um, as you say, that I've already said that many things I love about your book. I also love one of the things I really love is the way that it is very bold in saying these are the big scary concepts that, if you've been to meetings, you may have heard. <laughs> let's do labour theory of value. Let's do. Uh, perpetual crisis let's you know let's do financialization let's not duck them and let's not water them down but that these are the building blocks and you do it I think in a very dense but accessible way I mean people can read that book and they will have those building blocks and you've said a little bit I wondered if you could say a little bit more about why this particular conceptual literacy as well as an anti-capitalist sentiment Right. It's part of what you think we we need collectively to build. Right. Absolutely. I mean, I think part of it is, like you said, you know, it's naming the beast um, that for people to and there is a, a, at least a vague sentiment that that beast, that name of the beast is capitalism. You know, and I think more and more people are seeing that, understanding that um, animated and angered by that. And so we have to then understand what is capitalism. You know, we have, okay, we've named it. Now we actually have to understand it. And what I try to do in the book um, in tackling the big concepts uh, was to give people a framework for um, understanding what's happening. You know, what are the underlying dynamics? What is capitalism at its root? Not just how do you understand the surface of prices and stock markets, which is sort of like where mainstream economics uh, begins and often ends. Um, I, you know, basically followed Marx's method of beginning with the big concepts, you know, and once you have those as the building blocks, you can build out and sort of use the glasses, you know, use the analytical tools of Marxism to look at current crises, at financialization and so on. Um, the big concepts are important because they get to the root causes and the underlying dynamics. You know, capitalism is fundamentally a mystified system, right? It's at its core, it's it's meant to be mystified. We're, it, it's all about freedom, you know, the free market choices. Uh, we're all just meeting each other on a you know level playing field. I sell my labor, my boss sells the goods, you know, et cetera. Um, but actually at the root of it is economic compulsion and exploitation and oppression, um, you know, as the glue to keep those processes in place. Um, and so in order to understand those, those, the root of the system, you have to grapple with the big concepts, you know, what is labor, what produces value under capitalism towards whose benefit, um, at whose expense, 
how does exploitation really work? Um, and, and, and so on, you know, where do profits really come from? Uh, I think we have to understand all the big picture questions in order to then apply them to the reality around us. No, absolutely. And, and actually that makes me want to ask a kind of slight follow-up question that, of course, one of the things that happens if people, as you say, start to comprehend the concepts that allow you to see the beast is that hardship in the world stops being unfortunate and starts being enraging because there's a perpetrator, not a named perpetrator, but you start to see these things that people perhaps are well-schooled in thinking of sad, unfortunate Mm -hmm. things and instead feel like someone did this to us yeah. and and I wondered if that was if that felt like how the political climate for some people was changing in the states as well because I certainly think an element of that is what is happening here in Britain yeah I think that's absolutely true I mean something is unfortunate if it is just by chance is what happened you know well if somebody trips and falls and that's unfortunate you know, if somebody is getting kicked in the shins repeatedly so that they, all they can do is trip and fall, then that's a different story. Um, and I think that that's exactly what this past decade and like I said, the, the pandemic is sort of the, the nail in the coffin. Um, that's what this last decade has borne out around the world. I mean, the, the lesson of the Great Recession, right, is that the financial elite caused a massive you know, unbelievably devastating crisis around the world. And it was so clear who had caused it. And yet those are the very same people that were bailed out. Uh, meanwhile, all the, the people whose um, mortgages were foreclosed um, and that faced evictions and so on didn't, didn't get bailed out. Um, that was the lesson of the Great Recession. And, and now we're seeing through this pandemic, right, billionaires have increased their wealth by an unbelievable, you know, historic levels, while millions of people have been thrown into poverty. Um, in the U.S., one out of five children um, were hungry last year. Um, you know, that there was just mass devastation while, you know, some people um, made made out like bandits. Um, you know, we had uh, Jeff Bezos uh, taking a joyride to the moon uh, while, you know, we still have a crisis of mass deaths and unemployment and so on, uh, wrecking, uh, wrecking the, the planet. So, um, I, I think that there is, uh, there is absolutely that sense. And I think that that's why people are looking for radical explanations, not just, you know, how can we make this a little better, but what's really, uh, at the root and how do we change the system fundamentally? No, no, absolutely. And I think, and I think that's an uncomfortable realisation, isn't it? Because we're all so schooled to be charitable, to be mm -hmm. sad and charitable because, look, humanity is suffering. It's a big shift to say to be angry and militant from being sad and charitable. Right. But, and Marx's Marx's education does that to you. So, no, no more. You, know, you can still do praying, but praying is not going to be sufficient anymore. Right. Um, uh, one of the parts of the books I wanted to ask you a little bit about is that quite early on, after some of the two big conceptual chapters, you have a whole chapter which is about what is outside the abode of production. You use that phrase for Marx 
to really kind of expand this idea of what is beyond and alongside the productive economy, not only social reproduction, but you explicitly say state violence, um, ecological degradation. These are all of the other kinds of sufferings outside of the abode of production and yet kind of connected, adjacent, not mm -hmm. far away. So I'm losing my, my screen to see. And um, I think all over the world, certainly in Northern Europe and in the United States, some of those kinds of issues and sites have been some of the most fruitful for recent organising. You know, we can, not only for you, but for us as well, and actually far beyond. It's not only about the Northern Hemisphere, that that kind of street agitation, not only a policy kind of conference, but a street agitation about some of those issues. And I wondered if you might say a little bit more about how, when you're writing, you thought about how the left, the more formal kind of workerist left might engage further with those spaces that are outside the strict abode of production or whether there's something in how you're thinking about the book that wanted to mark more explicitly the links between those kinds of struggles and struggles which are more strictly over the workplace or the economy. Sure, yeah. I mean, I think that there is a caricature of Marxism and a, and in some cases a rigid interpretation of Marxism by some sections of the left that understands class society as being what we see at our workplace, right? That exploitation, just a, a, like a rigid mechanical interpretation of, well, this is where exploitation takes place. Therefore, um, what matters is the class struggle at the workplace and so on. Uh, but of course, the working class isn't just the working class at work. You know, workers leave their homes in the morning. Hopefully they've been fed and rested and dressed. They go to work um, and they leave work through highly policed cities, right? Um, they're indebted through a myriad of financial obligations. None of these things are separate in our lives. Um, and none of these things are separate um, in the system of capitalism. Um, you know, you have uh, bosses and, uh, and lenders colluding in a way to keep us uh, economically uh, dominated. Um, it's, capitalism isn't just something that operates between you and your boss when you're at work. It's a system that daily reproduces itself, uh, and it reproduces itself in every realm of our lives, right? It certainly does so at work, where we generate profits for our bosses, and those, those profits are accumulated by the bosses so that they maintain a, mon a monopoly of capital and a monopoly of, you know, the means of subs subsistence. You know, I can't just decide I'm going to uh, produce my own life necessities uh, without having that kind of capital. So the fact that I reproduce profits and capital for my boss every day, um, that is part of how the system works. But it's also reproduced at home, you know, in our units of families or other households, um, reproducing our ability to work um, at a, a very discounted price for capitalists because we do it uh, we do it for free, mostly, you know, free labor that largely falls upon women, um, mothers, uh, wives, grandmothers uh, do a large share of uh, the childcare and the housekeeping and the so on that keeps um, 
keeps us able to to go back to work every day um, and that um, raises the next generation of workers. Um, but it's also, like you said, you know, reproduced through state violence and the threat of state violence. Um, you know, we see how the police structures are there to certainly to protect private property, um, but also, you know, to protect the status quo and and through racism in particular, you know, to keep sections of the working class, um, to keep black and brown people more desperate, more disempowered, more vulnerable, um, and to keep, you know, the vast majority of people divided from each other. So, so that we have a situation where really a lack of solidarity within the working class has been uh, certainly in the U.S., but I know this is not U.S. specific, but the biggest roadblock to building a movement for substantive redistribution of wealth and resources for better housing and education and health care. Um, this, this lack of solidarity, um, you know, through uh, the scapegoating uh, and state violence that's perpetuated um, against uh, black and brown people um, has, has done a, a huge a huge disservice um, and a devastating one um, to to, um, at, at, to to black and brown people and to the and to the and to working class movements um, as well. So, you know, I think we're 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 seeing uh, in the United States a, a sort of revival of working class militancy at work. And um, last year, we saw the largest protest movement in history for racial justice. Um, we're seeing right now ongoing struggles around budgets, around fiscal spending, around climate justice uh, and the Green New Deal. And, you know, these are things that are inextricably linked to each other. They're linked to questions of of class power um, and, um, you know, exploitation, oppression, climate crisis. This is a system that dominates um the majority for the benefit of the few at any cost. Um, and so, you know, we need a left that can help to build solidarity, you know, among those struggles concretely, but also a left that can put forward a political vision that really ties, you know, the economic exploitation with the racial oppression uh, with climate crisis and understands these as one as one system. No, no, absolutely. And I think... I think undoubtedly that you know one of the reasons people are coming to your book is because it helps them have that conceptual roadmap to be able to make those connections, as you say, which is you know the urgent questions of our time. I had a more kind of quizzical question, which just partly you know someone to talk you know who can I ask this to in the um section about class identities in your book, you have quite a you do a kind of debunking of the myth of middle-classness in the States mm -hmm. and the fantasy of apparently of so much of the American population that they are middle-class despite their economic circumstances and lack of wealth. And I was thinking how very differently those debates about class identity play out in Britain. You've, you probably know that when the British public is surveyed, even quite affluent people say, no, I'm definitely working class, that there is a, a whole, a dip, there's a whole kind of... Um, unresolved battle on the left and beyond about what a class culture is, about working class culture and how that constitutes class identity. And I kind of wondered, firstly, why 
it was so important to include that chapter for, an, for a US audience, I guess, was your first audience in your book, and how that might translate for a UK or other context, where, you know, where people will just say, you know, even middle class people say, no, I'm not middle class. You know, people, I don't know if you, well, no reason why I should know, but for the people who are listening to this, during the... Um, terrible discussion, non-discussions about Brexit, one of the things that emerged from one of uh, those kind of their key TV shows in which British politics is kind of staged as a Punch and Judy bust up. And one of those bust up shows, Question Time, had this whole thing about um, around Corbyn and about who might be um, taxed more in the aftermath of Brexit as well, in which people legitimately said just because I earn more than £80,000 a year doesn't mean I should be taxed more because I'm still part of the working poor. You know, I'm not affluent. And so there's a kind of kind of a different discourse here, I think, about who belongs where. And I just thought, oh, that's I, I can't get my head around that. So I thought I'd ask right. you. Yeah, I, I, I think that's fascinating for sure. I mean, to answer your question, I'm Certainly for a U.S. audience, I think it was an important element for me to address. And, um, you know, like you said, in the U.S., there's this conception that we live in a middle class country, um, that the vast majority of people are middle class and that, you know, you have a few very rich people and a few very poor people kind of on the fringes of society and the rest of us are middle class. And then the politicians are always talking about how they're going to save the middle class and so on and so forth. Um, you know, I think that that myth has begun to be punctured in the U.S. Um, we're a long ways away from where you are in the U.K., but, you know, I think Occupy Wall Street was sort of the first to insert elements of class into a, a mainstream national discussion. Um, you know, we are the 99%. Um, it, it sort of addressed this um, record inequality um, and and division of, you know, naming the enemy. You know, this, this doesn't exist by coincidence, but there is a 1% that's in charge. Um, I think uh, Bernie's presidential campaigns, he was, you know, <laughs> the first mainstream politician and I don't know how long to talk about the working class um, and how the working class has taken it on the chin and how the working class has been suffering and then and talking about the um, industries that have benefited and so on. Um, and then I think also uh, the pandemic, as a result of the pandemic, there has been a lot more discussion in mainstream um, discourse, you know, essential workers has been something that everybody has talked about that, you know, you, this, the system doesn't run without grocery workers, nurses, teachers, uh, logistics workers, delivery, you know, workers and so on, um, that workers are essential to the way, um, that our daily lives, uh, can go on. And, and certainly that capitalism, um, can go on and so forth. And now we're seeing some strikes, which, um, in, you know, help to put, the idea of working class, not just the working class, but working class agency at the forefront. So I think that we're at the beginning stages in the U.S. of that kind of myth of the middle class country being punctured. Um, and I think that it's important, you know, again, to take what's broadly happening 
um, and to try to clarify and, and hone in on it, you know, to try to build a left that is clear on the concepts of class, not just as a, one identity among many, but that's, you know, part of an edifice of a class society. Um, and so I think that that that's the sort of intervention that the book is trying to make, right, is to clarify that uh, for people who are either already organized or are newly organizing or are curious about socialism and about organizing um, to help to clarify these ideas and to um, and to convince the people that they're organizing with. Um, you know, I think in uh, the UK, I, I don't know as much about the the left and 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 politics in the UK, but I think um, you know that the question of the power of the working class is certainly as important as ever, and that you know some of the disorientation and the crisis within the Labour Party, um, some of the disconnect um, that's happened between uh, working class communities and working class movements from the self-identified left. Um, that those, you know, that that's part of a more global crisis of the left, um, of trying to uh, re-wed, remarry, um, you know, the sort of like formal self-identified left with uh, more broadly working class movements, uh, working class communities, um, and so on. Um, you know, I, like I said, I don't, I don't know as much about the the state of the of this discourse in the UK, but I think that, um, you know, clarifying these politics um, of it, it not just being about how much money you make, but it matter. It, it's a question of, sorry, I'll just let the siren go by, um, of letting, of, of figuring out where you stand in relation to production. What is your relationship to your job? What's your relation? Are you you know, the person who is coming in uh, to work for a wage, it's clocking in and clocking out. It has little control over the day in between when you clock in and clock out. Or are you the person who's managing somebody else, you know, or are you the person that's running your own, you know, doctor's clinic? Those are very different positions uh, to, um, to production, to labor, to the fruits of your labor. Um, and that's ultimately what what Marxism as an analytical tool helps us to understand. No, absolutely. And actually, I think that's a great place to end, really, that Marxism helps you to understand where you are in the world, why your life is how it is, and your relations to others. And it's only from that there's any hope of us changing our worlds for the better together. So thank you so much for your time. That was just a lovely conversation. And I hope thank it you, kind of allowed you to speak about the book in the way you wanted to. Thanks so much. Thank you.
Thanks for listening. If you liked this episode, subscribe to our podcast and to the Haymarket Books YouTube channel, where events like this one are hosted live. And don't forget to check out haymarketbooks.org.